Hi, I'm Sean. And I'm Thomas. And this is the Sean and Thomas Show. Hey everyone, I'm Sean, co-founder of the Chicago software development agency DevScale, and welcome to the Sean and Thomas Show. This is episode number 10 of Scale Talk, a series where Thomas and I talk with successful Chicago-based founders, CEOs, and CTOs that have scaled up their businesses and tech teams. The hope is for us to learn something from them that we can all apply to our lives and our own businesses. On today's show, we have Christy Zulke, the CEO and co-founder of Knowledge Hound. Christy has an absolutely incredible story going from Fortune 500 employee to starting a company that now has companies like Google as their client. Her story as a founder is also super interesting because she's non-technical. And for those of you that may want to start a company or a side project but have little technical skills, she's going to tell us exactly how she started not one, but two tech companies as a non-technical founder. It's a really important story to get out there. Um, The more people that know they can start companies and not be a developer, the better. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Let's jump into the call. Good place to to start here is if you can just give us a little background on who you are and what Knowledge Hound is. Sure. So I'm Christy Zelke. I'm the CEO and founder of a SaaS platform called Knowledge Hound. Uh, A little bit of background on me to give you some insight into what I'm doing and why I'm doing it is that I started my career at Procter & Gamble. So P&G makes products like uh, Gillette and Old Spice, Pantene, Tide. So a lot of the things that are in your household. And I, my job at P&G was to be the voice of the consumer in the decisions that we make on these brands. And if I didn't know the answer um, of how a, a consumer might think or behave, I would go out and survey respondents um, or survey our, our target market. And we would do millions of dollars in research every year um, to understand their behaviors, their attitudes, or whatever it may be. And we would pull that into the organization and present it in a beautiful PowerPoint presentation. And then the data was gone forever. And I always thought, hmm, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually be able to recycle that that investment that we've made and make data searchable? Uh, I'm not talking about like PowerPoints and Word documents. I'm talking about actual survey data, uh, Mm -hmm. making survey data uh, searchable and then instantly visualize it. So that was my business idea. Um, I left P&G in 2011. And I started Knowledge Hound um, after that. And now, six years later, after founding the company, I uh, have a company of 20 or so employees. We are in the West Loop in Chicago. That's awesome. Six years and 20 employees. That's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's been a wild ride. We raised about $5 million along the way. And we were bootstrapped for the first year and a half. So it's been lots. We've tried to get away with raising as little amount of money as possible. And it's a very Midwest type approach to (laughs) growing a tech company. Why did you choose to be bootstrapped at the beginning? And tell us a little bit more about the beginning of like how it started. Was it because it wasn't you and some people, it was you. No, right. And I had a technical co-founder and he did all the development work. Um, Mm -hmm. I really have tried to teach myself how to code for a very brief moment and realize that I don't enjoy it and I'm not good at it. So at least you tried. I tried. I tried. I mean, like not super hard, but, (laughs) um, but I, uh, I tried and I decided that I should outsource that. So I found a technical co-founder who could do all the dev work. And then I focused on everything else from sales to client success, HR, finance, just anything else, I did it. Uh, And so what we did, though, was we put together a prototype uh, and it looked it looked like it worked. Like it looked like it really worked and that, um, and that you could actually ingest survey data into our platform. And so I took it back to PNG. I took it back to someone who I didn't know well, but I was introduced to her through my network as someone who's forward thinking and innovative. And I pitched it to her and she was willing to give us a purchase order to deliver the platform. 
And so that's how we got our first money. And that's I amazing. really, yeah, it was pretty awesome. So then I got back in the car from Cincinnati, driving back to Chicago. And I was like, oh, crap. Now we got to make this thing work. Yeah. <laughs> Were you still an employee at this time? No, I wasn't. Um, okay. So you actually have to wait two years um, to, or what, you have to wait. Yeah, it's either two years or one year. I can't remember to actually go back and work with PNG again. So I had mm. a little stint doing something different. Um, and um, I'd actually, right when I left PNG, I created a smartphone app that takes pictures of mold on your skin and okay. analyzes their characteristics for skin cancer. And I saw that in 2012. And then in 2013, I started Knowledge Hound. From there forward, I could actually go back and work with PNG again. You created a smartphone app and then sold it a year later? Yeah. You <laughs> forgot no to idea. mention that whole piece about it. <laughs> no idea you did this. Um, can you yeah. talk to us a little bit about how that got started? And like, sure, that seems like sure. out of left field yeah. compared to what you're doing now. Or was, this just started because you knew you had two years to wait. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. what are we, what are we going to yeah. do now? <laughs> <laughs> right. What do I do in the spare two years that I have? Uh, no, really what, like that's, so when I was at PNG, so I've always known I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I started when I was in high school, I started a journal of all the business ideas that I have. Um, and it ranged from, I don't know, anything from like widgets to uh, services, anything really. Uh, and so I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I met someone when I was in college who um, became a mentor of mine. I started my first business when I was in college, actually, um, which was a video rental store, which makes me sound very old. <laughs> it was at least it was DVDs. <laughs> it was not VHS. Um, and Netflix launched like the year after we started the um, video rental store, but and we survived for like seven years after that. Um, wow. So. It was, it took a while for people to adopt. I think, you know, Netflix really didn't get adopted as as, at scale until they went digital. Um, So we, you know, we fought through the times where they would, you know, mail you a DVD in the the mail, if you remember Mm -hmm. that. But um, anyway, so because I created the first student run and own business at Xavier University, I sat on our board for entrepreneurship at the university. And I met this woman through that um, who was working at P&G at the time. And uh, she said, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I was like, oh, I'm going to start another company. She's like, okay, great. What are you going to start? Like, I don't know yet. And she's like, okay. (laughs) All right, little one. Um, So naive. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you come to P&G? And she's like, we'll teach you how to grow billion dollar brands. We'll train you as a leader. You can make mistakes and people, it's not like as big of an impact to the business or your own personal checking account. Uh, and I was like, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. So I went to PNG knowing I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was really there to be a sponge and learn how a large companies are run, uh, learn how to just be a leader in an organization. So I continued my journal of business ideas throughout that time period and and I was six years into PNG, and I felt like my learning curve had uh, had lessened. So it wasn't as steep as it was prior. And I was like, all right, I'm either going to go get promoted, or and then after that promotion, it's really less about growing new skills. Um, it's more about figuring out how to navigate politics, and that wasn't the right path for me. I wanted to create more skills for myself. So. I had this business idea of how can I help people who are being told, hey, track this mole at home um, on this piece of paper and pencil. And you're like, oh, okay, like track if it's changed. Like, I don't remember if it's changed. Um, but I bet my smartphone could figure that out. So that's where this whole idea came up. Um, and so what I decided to do was... Uh, I found a I found a guy over at MIT Media Lab um, who was in the camera vision camera vision section of the MIT Media Lab, and he's amazing. And um, I went over and talked to him about my idea, and he's like, "Yeah, I can help you with that." I'm like, All right, that's pretty cool. So, um, so he helped me uh, develop that. And but what I learned through that experience was that 
I had a really cool technology. I really didn't have a business model. Like I wasn't going to create a sustainable business that would employ hundreds of people off of 399 downloads. Mm -hmm. So I really Mm -hmm. needed to create a business model. And when I tried to do that, the biggest idea that I had was, hey, could I help drive referrals to dermatologists? Yep. And as I started to do research after the fact, I realized that dermatologists, they unfortunately, they get paid to do Botox. They don't really get paid to remove moles. Mm-hmm. Like it has to go through insurance and um, they make a ton of money doing Botox. So the feedback that I was getting, and it wasn't quite as blunt as this, but reading through the lines was, hey, if you could develop an app that would enable us to do Botox on people yep. or like not not do it on them, but tell them that they needed to go into the doctor for Botox, that would be more of a business model and be something they'd be willing to pay for mm-hmm. versus getting people to go to them to remove moles. Hmm. So that's when I realized like my skill set was where this technology needed to go um, was not, you know, my skill set. I probably needed to have some kind of medical background to move this out of the preventative healthcare space into the, into the more medical Mm -hmm. um, arena. And so I ended up selling the technology to an investor out of the UK who um, I believe is now using it to take in-house with doctors in their own medical practices. Wow. And so did you, um, just to get the timeline right, did you uh, leave PNG to to start this? I did. Yeah. So I like, so I tried to do the whole moonlighting thing where after I would leave work, yeah. I'd work on it in the evening. Mm-hmm. And my problem was like, uh, at that job at PNG required so much of me and I wanted to give it my all. Like I wanted to give 110% every day. So after work, there was really only time to get a workout in and eat a healthy dinner and go to bed. And so it was just exhausting to also start a business. So I was just like, you know what? I know this is what I want to do. I didn't really think much about it. And I just quit my nice corporate job. (laughs) (laughs) So you quit your job, but but you have a salary and you have everything over here. Um, And even though you went in there knowing that, you wanted to leave at some point. You're walking away. Did how certain were you that you were going to like make a living, or did you have a cushion? Or so since I had started PNG, I had all on a monthly basis had always set aside money into a slush fund that I knew was going to be my entrepreneurial cushion, and so I had a set amount of money that I knew I could live very modestly for about six months. Uh, without taking a salary. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's what I did. Like, I was like, all right, I've got six months to figure out how to make some money. And, and if it doesn't work, I'll just go back to corporate America. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I knew I had six months and when you know you have six months, it's really motivating. It seems like you have a incredible talent for finding technical talent. Um, and like finding those like co-founders or someone to help you, build up the whole technical stack. How did you go about doing that? Or how did you know where to look? Uh, Like, how did you know to go to MIT and go to their like camera division? So the way that I thought about that was I started, I've never been shy to talk to people about my ideas and Mm -hmm. to tell people what I've been thinking. And I think that's actually really important. Um, Some people want to say like, oh, I'm not going to tell anyone because then I'm like, then they might go do it. I think the reality is Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, if you tell someone your business idea and they go and execute on it and they execute on it better than you could have done, then it wasn't your idea to have in the first place. Like there's rare cases where someone, it happens, but it's very rare for someone to go and steal someone else's idea. Um, And so is, so I just talked to a lot of people about my idea and I was telling uh, this R and D director at PNG, this idea that I had, about this, uh, the smartphone app. And he was like, Oh, he's like, I'm a mentor at the MIT media lab. You should walk over the bridge to Cambridge. And cause we were in Boston and he's like, go talk to the MIT media lab. And so then I looked it up online. It was like, Oh, they have a camera vision lab. I thought that'd be great. And then he introduced me to the camera vision lab and they introduced me to Jason Bogus, who's this really cool developer and super smart. That's, That's amazing. amazing. 
<laughs> so I think like, you know, so I, I think I've also, am, I'm good at getting people to see a vision and getting them excited and motivated to uh, come with me on a journey. That's where I think my talent is. I have been learning my way through identifying then like who would be a really good fit for the company at which stage. So just because someone's willing to come along for the ride doesn't necessarily mean they're like the perfect fit for your company. And I've had to go through, uh, you know, instances of hiring and firing that could, you could consider my fault because I didn't understand what was the right talent for the organization. And I don't know as though I would say I have a good talent for bringing on tech co-founders. I would say I have a great talent of getting people to want to participate in what I'm building. Hmm. So with this, with this iOS app, then you had six months of runway. How long did you last and how far were you able to make that money go? Yeah. Okay. So let me think. So we were at it. So it was on the market. It was on the market for about a year before I sold it. So I turned that six month runway into like a year and a half uh, because of the downloads. Because like I, it took me, let's see here, we launched. So you were here. paying yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I was paying myself. Um, and the way that I structured the deal with my developer was I said, hey, for every for every download, I'll give you a percent of the revenue. Yeah. And, you know, as a student, I think that sounds like a pretty good deal. Um, motivated him, uh, motivated me. And it was, it was one of those really good, um, good deals for the time, but you have to find like, I think I had to find the, the person that was in the right stage of their life to be able to be okay with that type of compensation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. So fast forward, you sold it, you were done with it. Um, where, how did knowledge hound come to be? So I sell, so I sell uh, my technology and I go back to my journal of ideas and I'm like, all right, what's next? <laughs> yeah. I'm like leaping through. And I came across this problem that I had when I was at P and G, which, you know, it was, I explained it in my journal as the Google for market research and um, I had a bunch, like the idea was actually even bigger than that, but mm -hmm. it was like, okay, let me test. I, I wrote down the concept on paper and then I started testing it with, with folks and um, with different people in my network. Uh, since my network was people who would be potentially buying this, I could, I could have, I could test this idea as a concept very easily. Cause all I had to do is call up 10 friends and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. Um, and so that getting their feedback evolved the idea, um, and had it become very focused on creating a search driven analytics platform for survey data. And I was able to get like really hyper-focused in on that. And then once I was able then to find a new developer in Chicago who was willing to come along for the ride. Um, we were able to develop the prototype. Now he was gracious and decided to quit his job and work for equity. Mm -hmm. um, the two of us worked without um, pay for, he, I believe, I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right, uh, but I think he worked for like a year and a half without hardly maybe like with me giving him like five to ten thousand dollars um and i worked for two years or more without a salary um and i put in i think it was about forty thousand dollars of my own money into the company as well mm -hmm. uh and so i just became really poor like i was in <laughs> major amount of debt <laughs> And it's amazing. There too. <laughs> it's amazing. I think it was so I think I calculated it the other day and it was like I went almost two years living in Chicago and spent just over forty thousand dollars. It's it's amazing so, what you can I'm, do when you have to do it. Totally. It's amazing. <laughs> like you don't like today, like you know, I could go. I now can go and get my nails done. 
I would never have done that before ever. I couldn't afford it. I remember texting a friend and being like, I am so fucking poor that I can't even buy a Starbucks. Yep. And, and she was like, Christy, I know it's really hard. There's going to be a day that you can walk into that Starbucks and buy everyone a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I hope so, because it's really bad. Um, and I just remember my friend sending me a gift card for Starbucks and in the mail um, as just like a really sweet gesture. And I was so excited. And I remember I even took a selfie with like this, Mo, I got like a mocha and it was just like <laughs> such a treat. I'm like, this, but it makes you really appreciate things. I think growing yeah. up in a middle-class family in Wisconsin, we never had to worry about money. We didn't have, I shopped at Kohl's for clothes and like, mm-hmm. it wasn't like an extravagant lifestyle, but we never stressed about will we put food on the table. And a lot, a lot of Americans have to have that feeling. And I never had that. And then out, mm-hmm. out of undergrad, I went right into a Procter and Gamble salary. So my trajectory in life, I would have never been able to empathize a single second with anyone in the United States, probably 50% of the United States of having to live on a budget or a strict budget, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think through this experience of being really poor, uh, poor, you know, is that, uh, and I say poor like that because it's, um, you, I was lucky enough to be able to take out debt, um, and low mm-hmm. interest debt. And, um, and there's people out there who can't even afford that. So, um, yep. you know, I, I, it was a really good, um, uh, moment in my time that was absolutely depressing and painful, but it was a learning experience and a realization that has given me empathy for an understanding of people who live, uh, a different, or experience a different American lifestyle than I do today. Has that experience affected how you run your business today? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's that experience or just the fact that I'm, I've grown up like um, pretty responsible with money. I don't spend things um, like I'll treat myself for sure. Like, um, but I don't tend Starbucks to drink. shop often. Yeah. Starbucks drink. That's my splurge, right? Like I don't spend a lot of money often, but for sure, like my team, we're still, you know, we're, we're six years in Google is our largest client. Like we're, we're making some good money here. And, um, and my team still, we still stay in Airbnbs together when we go to conferences to save money on hotels. Like, there, to me, it's ridiculous to go if six of us are in a are in a city, the same city, to have all six of us get a hotel room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. So my husband thinks it's weird. He's like, "You stay in Airbnbs with your employees? Like, you know, it's, it's weird, right? Like, if you come from a corporate environment, if I were to stay at PNG, same thing. Like, that's weird. But you don't like. To me, it's like, no, you you're scrappy. You make every dollar a stretch. And it's probably a reason why we've been able to survive six years um, because we all know that it hasn't been six years of, oh, this is awesome. It's, you know, moments of like, this is awesome. And then this is absolutely horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you have to, I think, um, I don't know if those two years of my life really, it probably subconsciously affect me still today about how I spend money. But I think it's also just more of my personality. What made you think? that it would be better to or did you did you start knowledge hound knowing that you wanted to raise money in a year and a half or two or was that kind of like um give me a little bit more flexibility so i can go to starbucks without asking for gift cards (laughs) sort of feeling (laughs) so i was just like so naive like this is six years ago so this is still like kind of new territory of like this whole vc tech fundraising thing, especially for like the Midwest. And I'm coming from corporate America and I have zero understanding. I don't know what a convertible note is. I don't know what price round means. I don't like know like a cap, a cap table, like what's that? You know, so um, but what the media was writing about was the founder who creates a tech company, raises $20 million and sells their company for a billion. And the founder ends up with 70% of the business. And you're like, 
oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Oh, and by the way, they did it in three years. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I think I just said, which by the way, never happens, but, um, (laughs) but I think I was just like naive and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to go raise money, you know, just because that's what I read in the newspaper. Um, instead what really happens that they don't tell you, um, and they still don't do a good job writing about this in my opinion because who wants to read about this? It's boring, which is most, most, if you can survive, most companies get a really, really good exit is 200 million. And most companies, the founders together jointly own 10% or less of the company. Mm-hmm. And so it is, but you, and you have to get lucky to do that. And by the way, it takes like 10 to 15 years. Wait, and not three years a, or like no, one year or like a few months? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's so now sometimes I'm like six years. What have I been doing for six years? Like still, I feel like six years has been an eternity and I don't feel like, you know, we're growing fast enough or, you know, it's, um, and you know, I, yeah, I always, it's, you want to grow faster always, even if we were growing, you know, 5,000 times every year, we'd want to be growing faster, but it just takes so much longer and it's 10 times harder than you ever think it's going to be. Do you regret raising money or is, was that good for your business? No, I, I do not regret raising money. Uh, we had to have it in order to, to scale. Um, there was no way that we were going to be able to service three clients. So when we raised money, we had three clients and, like $150,000 in annual reoccurring revenue. And in order to be able to put like the marketing dollars behind it, this give the clients the, um, the, the service they, they needed to scale that, uh, we had to raise money. And, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so I don't regret raising money now. Yeah. In your previous businesses, um, that you had started, it sounded like it was a pretty small team, right? Yes. Like one or two people. Uh, And then Knowledge Hound comes around and it's still one or two people, you know, two people. Um, Mm -hmm. By the time you raised money, was it still two people or was there? So when we, so when we were raising money, I had three other people who were on as contractors. So there were really five of us. And um, so I had a developer, a data scientist, a designer, a data processor, and me. Mm-hmm. And um, and so two of us were employees working for equity and three of them were contractors. And then with the, we did a $1.2 million seed round and we put our contractors on salary. We put ourselves on salary. As founders, we put ourselves on salary and then we hired five more people. So we went from, two employees working for equity to 10 employees on payroll. Sean and I um, are currently going through this phase where we're starting to kind of delegate more uh, and try to like remove ourselves because we see that we're doing like repetitive things or like who else can you know help us with that. Is that along the time of that raise, was that when you realized that you needed someone to help with, you know, the sales side or just like, all these extra tasks that you couldn't do it yourself. And how was it giving up that responsibility? Cause it's kind of hard to do when it's your first time. Sure. Yeah, for sure. So the, it wasn't necessarily for me that I was duplicating things or it could be repetitive. It was more so I knew that I could grow the business more if I, if there was more of me. And so I tried to pick areas that I wasn't as good at to delegate to other people. And because I wasn't as good at those things, it wasn't as painful for me to hand them off. Because <laughs> um, I was like, good, I have no idea how to do the financials. <laughs> like, good luck. Here's the, <laughs> here's the P&L that I've been working on. And it is bad. Um, so, but I do go through ebbs and flows of diving into details and then going back out and doing more strategy type work and then diving back in. And, um, 
I have, I do have peers that have a hard time letting go of specific, specific aspects of their business, but, um, it's understanding, I think based on my experience, I think it's really about understanding what you're really good at and where the company's greatest asset is the founder, um, for, for especially the early stages rather. Um, knowing where your time is best spent is the most important thing. One of the most important things you can do as a founder. Um, so delegating is really important. Mm -hmm. So where, where is your time best spent today? I am really good at developing partnerships for the company, getting leads into new sales, um, opportunities, uh, really good at more of the understanding the industry and the product where the product needs to go. Uh, those are the three areas that I spend probably the most time doing. Okay, cool. You, um, you mentioned that you were at around 150,000 ARR when you raised the the round. Are you, are you transparent with your numbers now? Um, just to give a sense of where you've, where you've gotten to. Yeah, we're not, as transparent as what you'd probably like me to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just because obviously when you're raising money and all that, it's, it's yeah, so sensitive, but, um, but we're in, we're deaf, we're less than 50 million more than 1 million. So awesome. we'll put you in at that. <laughs> so you're in the seven figure range, seven, seven and eight figure range. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, it, and we're, and we'll actually, um, we're working towards break even and we anticipate to be at break even this year. So, which is very unusual for a tech company since we've been so conservative in our funding. Um, we've also have more conservative investors and I think it's the right choice though. I think unless we were growing, you know, 500% year over year, yes, it'd be like, let's throw money in. Um, let's really get this thing going. And we're, we're growing nicely. We're growing a really nice clip. But once we, once you can get um, to break even, you can also open up yourself to a new type of uh, financing structure, which is raising venture debt. Mm -hmm. And Silicon Valley Bank, Square One, CIBC, they'll actually give you two to three million or more in debt. And that doesn't dilute you. Um, and as long as you've got a stable business that is SaaS, ARR, you know, reoccurring revenue, it's a really good way to do a bridge round. You can kind of look at it as a bridge round, a really great way to finance the company without having to lose control of your board seat, like by having to give up another board seat mm -hmm. or, um, or diluting yourself on the cap table. So it's actually a pretty interesting way to think about financing your company. And that's really something that our series A investors have brought in as a, as a financial strategy that they believe a lot in, which I'm totally on board for. How does one go from having the clients from your own network, like PNG to now Google when your tagline is you're the Google for market research? <laughs> does Google know that? <laughs> so now you're the Google of Google, essentially. Yeah. What you are. Yeah. using the Google. <laughs> Yeah, it was funny. Her Google client said the other day, she was like, you do realize you just sold Google to Google, right? <laughs> <laughs> so your question is like, how do you go from CPG to tech or? Yeah, I guess um, that's, so your first few customers are usually within your network, right? It's your PNG people. And um, so how do you go yeah. from your, like once you break that, that your network people threshold? New people. Totally. Yeah. So the big difference for us was, hey, can we, how do you, it's really about how do you generate leads and can you generate leads at scale? And so we started with doing the traditional email, like SDR, sales development rep type business model, where we would go out and just send all these people like seven to 10 emails and email cadence and try to get them to come into our pipeline. And um, it just hadn't been working for us. And so we were like, all right, why is this not working? And we were like, you know what? Everyone's getting pounded with emails and they're just not, it's, and, and companies are getting smarter at how to weed those out for employees. 
And so we started going to conferences and speaking with our clients at conferences. And that is what has been able us, enabled us to scale more through lead generation that isn't just through my network, um, but going to these industry conferences and speaking with these with our client our brands that are our clients and then the leads come in from there. Okay. And so just to give us a little clarity, what do you do for Google specifically or or for a client? What what is it that you're actually doing for them? Yeah, so when we go into a company, we ingest all of their survey data. So you know, they're doing surveys on their consumers all the time. And you've probably taken surveys for these people before. Um, And they are collecting it in, um, in a data file, but they're saving that data file on their hard drive um, or keeping it inside like the system that collected it and not even touching it. And so what we do is we go in and we pull in that survey data at the respondent level. So essentially we, what we do is we create a data warehouse of all of this unstructured survey data. We transform that unstructured data into structured data using some uh, new new technology that we developed that then, um, so now you've got like this structured database of survey data. We layer on top a search engine and an analytics engine. So a company like Procter & Gamble can go in and be like, percent of people that do their laundry in the evening. And we're going to search through every question, every response that they've asked to every consumer in the world, anyone that they've asked that to, then we return results back like Google does. Like, mm-hmm. here are all of your potential answers. And when they click on one of the questions that they've asked consumers, it generates a chart on the fly. So it'll be like, 26% of people, I just made that up, but 26% of people do their laundry in the evening. I have no mm-hmm. idea. But um, so it's like this instant answer. So like the the use cases, the insight person is in a meeting. So we sell to a VP of insights or a VP of marketing and their job is to make consumer driven decisions. And so someone will be in a meeting. They're asked what percent of men shave in the shower. They can go into Knowledge Hound and type in keywords. We're going to search all the research they've ever done and then generate a chart on the fly. So they can be like, oh, you know what? 20% of people shave in the shower. Maybe we should think about adding something to this razor that would be better. Maybe like a grip that won't flip or, I don't know, again, just making stuff up. But yeah. um, you know, it really drives a consumer conversation versus a conversation about, um, just kind of guessing, you know, what consumers think or what they do. Yeah, that's cool. So you, you mentioned that um, you sell to the VP of Insights or VP of Marketing. How long did it take you to figure out who it is that you sell to within a company? It didn't take long because I came from the industry. I just cool. knew because I knew P&G. But I think if I hadn't known that, I would. it wouldn't take long. I think the the question is, is when you share show people you know, your product is who would be the decision maker for something like this? And that's what we ask in our sales calls to get to the exact person. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes they're like, well, I think I need to bring in IT for this, but they're not going to be the decision maker. They're going to have to do a security review. Like, yep, that's right. So um, I think that's actually a really important question to be asking in a lot of sales calls is, you know, who's the decision maker? Because uh, we used to get caught too low inside of the organization. And really the people we were talking to didn't have decision authority. They would love the platform and they love it, but they weren't mobilizers. They couldn't get us high enough inside the organization to actually get a purchase order uh, achieved. So we would we had to switch our strategy and, and go higher. Isn't that like sometimes a strategy of selling is to try to find out the people who would and like the end users of your product when it's a B2B platform um, and yeah. then try to like go up from there. But you're saying that strategy didn't work for you very well, right? No, well, yeah. So we could do it that way. That is absolutely one way you can do it. You have to make sure you find someone though in the, who not only is enthusiastic about your platform, but is a mobilizer inside the organization and doesn't feel shy to take it to someone higher. It's step. amazing how many people you find inside <laughs> these organizations who are uh, too timid. Mm-hmm. to take a platform 
to their VP, or maybe they're too, like maybe they just started last year and they don't even know their, their VP doesn't even know their names yet in the organization. Okay. Like they're just like, Oh, I don't know. So then you've got like five layers to get, to get through, get through before yeah. you get to that VP. Yeah. I love how you say that, like, and it's so funny how leads are honestly like the core to scaling a business and finding that, that like font or just finding that like spring of leads to constantly generate is the deciding factor of like what you're going to do next. So conferences are funny because it's like a old kind of mentality, you know, first it was new email and then you figured out that email everybody was using and now back to conferences. How do you know which conferences to go to? Because you have a lot of potential customers. So do you go after a specific industry or like? Yeah, so we, there are, uh, there are specific conferences for insights and market research people. So at a com at a market research and insights conference, there'll be people from all kinds of different industries there, but they're all practicing the same function. They're all, they all have the same problem within their organization of trying to find information that they've, the, the survey data that they've had from the past. So it actually is pretty focused for us. Now we've tried to scale conferences. There's only so many conferences in a year that you can go to. So we're like, all right, let's go in all in on conferences. And there were a couple conferences that just, there wasn't, there are more analytic minded folks there, not, um, not as insight focused. There's more data, too technical data scientists instead of more insight driven folks. So you, you still run into conferences that aren't as helpful, but for us, it's been really targeting the function versus the actual industry vertical. So, I love that you have this business ideas journal. Um, Sean and I come up with ideas all the time. We hear a billion ideas all the time. And for a long time, we didn't know what to do with them. And then we started a Trello board and we just constantly bombard that with like new ideas all the time. So I think it's really cool to have that business journal idea. Did you come up with that yourself? And then also around the time that you started that in high school, who influenced you to like, know that you wanted to start your own business? Oh, man. Um, So I don't know how I came up with the idea to start recording ideas. I think I just knew, I think when something energizes you, you just do it. Like I, when I was a kid, I was always, I loved playing imagination. Like I could play hours of school in my basement or hours of mom or whatever. You know, I was such a girl. I loved dress up. I loved all that stuff um, Barbies. So I loved like imagination and, you know, imagination, you, the kids, you're kind of like, where did they come up with this thing? You know, this, yeah. this secret friend they have or whatever, imaginary friend, or, you know? And I, th- so I just think like the business journal thing, just, I had a diary. So it was like, oh yeah, I was just like, right. I had these ideas that energized me. And so that's where they went. But my, so my, my mother's father was an entrepreneur. Um, he fought in world war two and he, when he came back from war, he decided not to finish college. Um, and he started his own building company. And so he's, he was very entrepreneurial. He built homes all over Wisconsin. Uh, And so I saw that, like I saw that was just part of my life. Um, on the other side of my family, my dad grew up on a farm and there's really nothing more American entrepreneurial than a farmer. Like that is true entrepreneurship. And my dad said he remembers when he was a little boy um, in the sandbox that you play in, he would design his entire farm with his like with sticks and, you know, sand and his little toy tractors and all that. And my dad is very entrepreneurial minded. My mom, um, when I was in high school during the, the, um, it was like 1998, she started her own online business selling clothes that for women who are always cold. So like mittens and hats and scarves. So I think I was just like surrounded with entrepreneurship, but I think it's very genetic. I I don't, I don't know why. Like, I just, I just think it's a bit genetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm actually the same way. My, my mom's dad was also a builder and, uh, he had a drywall company. Um, and that's just what he grew up with. He, he yeah. did his thing and, and that was his life. <laughs> I, 
I love that you ha- that your dad had a sandbox because for a long time, I wouldn't do farms, but I would do roads, uh, and I loved playing in the sandbox. That was like my go-to place. So your dream is <laughs> to be a road paver. Oh my gosh! Honestly, still to this day, I love construction <laughs> equipment. Like obsessed with it. I cannot wait when I have a ranch to like just have construction equipment to play around. Well, so so yesterday was Thomas's birthday, and I got him a uh, a gift card to the Crafty Beaver. Oh yeah, which is a construction store. It's a it's a local Home Depot, basically. Yeah, it has the coolest name ever, Crafty Beaver. I love it, Sean. That was so thoughtful of you. I was going to say I want to try something. You, you give a lot of advice to you have you're in a position where you can like give a lot of advice to a lot of different groups of people. So I want to try something new here and I'm just going to ask for advice for specific people and we're going to see what happens. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so if someone came up to you and they were in a corporate job and they thought they wanted to get out of that corporate job to start something, what's, what's your advice to them? What, what, what questions do you have them ask themselves? Are you solving a problem that you feel so passionate about, you will be able to get up every day for the next three years and fight for it. I don't know if there's really a different question other than that. And if the answer is yes, then you know you've got something. How do you know that? (laughs) I think you know because you can't stop thinking about it. And you know that you will be regretful if you don't try. Yeah. I think that's a good test. The, uh, the think about yourself if you're older and if you, if you think you'd regret it, uh, that's a good, yeah. a good test to go through. All right. Next one. Um, advice for founders currently raising money. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to give advice on that because everyone's experience is different. Right. So like it, it's, so I can say like what my experience is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, the experience for me is it's all about, it's similar to dating in that you have to find someone who is, who is equally as excited about you as you are about them. And you have to go on a lot of really awkward and terrible first dates to get to the person in in this case, the many people who are a good fit for your business. And so if you can think about the nose as a, oh, okay, wasn't the right fit and keep moving, there's going to be a right fit. Uh, it can help you stay positive. And, but no, it's, it's a numbers game um, in many cases. And you can increase your chances of hitting the right person by doing a lot of diligence, due diligence on, um, on them up front and understanding their passion and what they invest in in the past and all that. But, um, it is about kissing a lot of frogs. Yeah. Why is it important to you that the investors are good fit versus just finding someone who will give you money? Yeah. Well, okay. So the reality of raising money, first of all, is that you just need money. And so if you get money, just take it. Um, I mean, a lot of people would be like, Oh, make sure you have the right investors and they're, and it's okay. Yeah. If you have the luxury of being able to choose who your investors are, that's awesome. Most of us, we just need to survive. And so it's, there's like, no, there's no like, yeah. In a dream world, you go, Oh yeah, I don't want to take your money, but that's like very rare. I think investors have a subconscious investment thesis and that is, does it resonate with them and can they relate to the problem? And I strongly believe what that is one of the reasons why women received 2% of all venture funding last year. And it's, I don't think in most cases, in my opinion, I don't think men see, oh, this is a female founder. I'm, you know, I'm really not going to, I'm, I'm not interested I think a lot of the business ideas that women are presenting solve a problem that women have experienced and um, personally. And so I think you have to have like that emotional connection. Um, And 
so if I'm an investor and I've never realized what a pain it is for bridesmaids to get their dresses, I look at the business model, looks like a good business model, but I see a lot of good business models every day. I'm likely going to consciously or subconsciously go with the, the business model or the business that the business model is right, but also it resonates with me. Yeah. The the, exactly. The tuxedo, I totally, I think if you had them, even, I think if you had them side by side and even the bridesmaid business was a little bit better and had a higher TAM and the tuxedo business had a lower TAM, I think they'd still go with the tuxedo business because they can relate to that. It's mm-hmm. a, sure that probably decreases risk. And again, it may not even be conscious. And so for me, where I was able to find investors early on were people who had experienced the problem we were solving today. One of my favorite investors, I won't name his name to make everyone else jealous, but um, <laughs> the, the, he came from McKinsey and he saw exposure to all these brands who had the same problem that I was talking about. And he just got it. He was like, that, yes. Everyone has that problem. He didn't care about the market size slide. Mm -hmm. Like he was just like, yes, that is a real problem. I want to solve it with you. Here's money. So I think that's what I mean by finding like that, right? Um, You're, you're on the same page for the problem that you're solving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a great answer. I love that. I have a feeling we know which company that you're talking about with uh, the bridal. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, Brideside. Brideside, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah what, I love. What's her name? We, Thomas, we met her a few Nicole? times. Oh, no, Sonali. It's either Sonali or Nicole. Oh yeah, yeah Nicole. Yeah, Nicole. Yeah, yeah. we met yeah. Nicole once. Yeah. <laughs> what advice do you have for non-technical founders? Because uh, that's a big challenge and roadblock for a lot of people, where they're <laughs> like, "Oh, I've got this great idea, but oh, I don't know how to code, or I don't want to code, or I'm not interested in coding." Yeah. So it's really important for you to think through and understand what a technical co-founder can mean. So there's two types of technical co-founders and there isn't the right type um, or the wrong type, I should say too. Like, so there's two types. One is the technical founder who is amazing at developing code quickly and Uh, And he or she is just really energized by putting together concepts and making them work on a small scale and they can make anything that's in your head look real. Uh, Then the other type of technical co-founder is someone who can, um, who, who can think at much more scale, who can, who thinks about like the architecture and who thinks about how you're going to grow the company and who thinks about what it's going to look like three or four years down the road. And the company is likely going to need someone with that latter type of uh, mentality three or four years into the organization. And that doesn't mean the former type of mentality like the developer who can put together some really great code um it doesn't mean that they don't have a place at the organization it just says what do you what skill set do you need right now um and do you really make do you really have to um make them technical co-founder could if they have the skill set of being able to make amazing products that are great prototypes would it be beneficial rather to give them a smaller percent of equity and pay them instead of having them and and treat them more like a developer Mm -hmm. um, than a co-founder assess what you need. Do you need a true co-founder or do you need a true developer? And some can act, some can play both roles. It's very rare that you can find a developer who can put together the prototype very quickly and be that strategic thinker. Um, So what do you need and how can you compensate them? That's going to make the most sense for the skill set that they bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean and I like to read. Sean constantly orders books all the time. Um, what are some of your like most influential books or your favorite reads that you go back to uh, that either like inspire you or make you think? Um, oh, my gosh. Well, okay. So there's one that is therapy for me. 
is the hard thing about hard things by Pierre Thiel. Um, and it's therapy because he talks about how hard all this is. Um, I don't feel like it's a very well written book. I don't like, it's not like, it's kind of hard to read at some stages, but it, it makes me feel normal. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, is that, and, is that Peter Thiel or is that, um, Andresen? No, or Horowitz. It's Horowitz. Oh, it's Horowitz. It's Horowitz. Yeah. It's Horowitz. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's Horowitz. I have, um, from zero oh, to I one, have, I think is Peter Thiel. From I have zero to one, yeah, on my on my desk right now. That's why I was thinking that. Yes, Horowitz. Yeah. Thank you. And so it's like it's really, um, yeah, it makes me feel normal. Um, so that's one thing that helps. I mean, I also, I don't know. I I try to. I think it's really important to read to give your brain a rest at, when you're a founder. Like it's you need to figure out how to escape um, at moments. And like I couldn't watch. Silicon Valley on HBO for the longest time because it was too close to work. It's too real. And it was it's hilarious, like, but it was way too real. It was like, oh my God, that company just stole their idea and now they have to sell pizzas or whatever it was. I'm yeah. like, oh my God, that's like totally what's happening in my in my career right now. I can't watch this. Um, and so you really do need to figure out how you escape. And reading, so reading is not my escape. I don't read as much as most founders probably do or what most people do. Um, I work all the time and then I give myself a break. I'm an extrovert. So the way that I give myself a break is I, um, call my friends and my family and I talk to them about their lives. Are you a a podcast listener or where do you, do you consume any content anywhere? Yeah. So I do listen to, um, how I built this. Um, it's definitely, that can be stressful for me though, too, uh, because I compare myself to those people. Yeah. And I think I constant I battle with the um you're not you're not good enough. Um you're the imposter yep. Um so I I have to protect myself from that. But at the same time it can be very inspirational. My buddy Peter Ray Hall, who founded RX Bar, he was on it. Um and so I just listened to his episode the other day just because he's hilarious and yep. <laughs> I love his story. Um, and then Sarah Blakely, I've listened to her. She founded Spanx and I just love her attitude. So, you know, I, I listen to that. I also enjoy, um, like serial S town, some of those that are just leisure re- uh, listens yeah. because mm-hmm. again, like it's a bit of how do you escape the, the grind for me? And I've been pretty open about this, especially with the Women Tech Founders Association, where I, I talk to a lot of women about this. But I've, through my journey, I've struggled with depression and anxiety. And it's like real for founders. Um, there's actually an article written recently about um, the suicide rates among, among founders. Mental health is so critical. And for me, mental health has never been helpful in a book or a podcast that reinforces the negative thoughts that go through my brain of you're not good enough. You can't do this. This is going to fail. Um, it has to be the hours that I spend outside of work have to be things that fill, fill me up, uh, and reinforce the fact that I can do this and that, um, I am smart enough and I have a support system. And even if this company does fail, it's still a success. Yep. That's a, a wonderful mindset to have. And we all, and we struggle with it too. The imposter syndrome, it's real. Every time we listen to a podcast, it's like, ah, should we be doing that? <laughs> or yeah, the whole one and once in a while news story article, of they raised 20 million and sold for a billion. And, yeah, a months, it, and you're like, ah, <laughs> could have been me. Yeah, I should have done that. <laughs> I know. I'm like, it's such a failure. <laughs> No, we're gonna end on a positive note. We're we're all killing it right now. <laughs> we are. Yeah. We are crushing it. We are crushing it. And it's good. You have to have like um yeah, there are moments though. I, we moved into our own office in Janu- in uh, December and we've been in shared workspaces for the for you know, the first five year five and a half years we're in shared workspaces and you know, my I was giving my parents a virtual tour and they were like, Chrissy, you should just like pause and reflect and make sure you understand like how far you've come. Mm-hmm. And it is important for us to to stop and re- reflect on, you know, six years ago it was just two people. Yeah. Um 
and I was really poor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exciting. Well, uh, Tom, somebody will stop by sometime and say hi. Yeah, that'd be great. Where can listeners go to find out more about Knowledge Hound or more about you? Yeah, so knowledgehound.com is the best place to go for Knowledge Hound. Um, I am on Twitter, so is the company. So I'm at um, Zulk10. Um, and then on Twitter and then also LinkedIn is a great place to follow me. And uh, we post a lot about kind of conferences we're going to and all the crazy stuff we're up to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a really cool chat. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I hope I helped your listeners feel inspired and feel normal, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Uh, And as always, if you could subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're using, that would be so awesome for us. Um, It really helps us get a sense of who's listening and where you're listening. Um, And if you could also share the podcast with one person that you think would get value out of this, that would also be so, so helpful for us. Um, So yeah, thanks. Have a great weekend, guys.